0: Uh, so this morning, uh, real quick, we are going through, we're going to do five little, or f- sorry, four little five-minute sermonettes, homilies this morning. Uh, so basically, we're taking a look at Christ throughout all of Scripture. Uh, Jesus doesn't just show up in the New Testament. Uh, it starts all the way be- at the very beginning. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus in Genesis. Uh, I heard a pastor say one time that God wrote a book. And it's all about Jesus. Uh, it's a, a very easy way to remember what, what Scripture and what the Bible is all about. That God wrote this book, and throughout this whole book is telling the story of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at four little vignettes uh, of Jesus throughout Scripture. Uh, this, right now, though, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We know that God ha- has written this book uh, it's an epic book. It's an epic story of what Christ has done and will continue to do throughout Scripture. And we actually sang a little bit uh, from Genesis this morning uh, in Hark the Herald Angel Sing. just want to repeat these two lines from verse 4. It says, Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. And that comes straight out of Genesis 3, chapter 15. We're picking up the story, Adam and Eve have sinned, God has come to them, they were hiding, and he uh, is, is directing his attention to them, he's talking with them, and he's saying what he's going to do. And picking up in Genesis 3.15, after he talks uh, with Adam and Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As I was saying earlier, this is an epic story that God has written, and God being a great author, uh, better than C.S. Lewis, better than Tolkien, better than uh, any of the other popular authors that you may think of, uh, God has written a great story, and as any good author would do, God uses foreshadowing now some uh, theologians many theologians uh, refer to this passage here as the proto evangelium I know it's kind of a big word it basically means uh, that God is starting uh, the gospel message and this is the first time we see it so proto evangelium is what these verses are referred to or if you just want to remember foreshadowing uh, that's what God is doing here God is giving us a foreshadow of what's to come and if you think about it, there's a very natural uh, interaction that he describes. If, you're walking, if, a, if somebody's walking, hiking through the woods, and they see a snake, and there's an interaction between a human and a snake, there's a chance that that snake might bruise the heel, bite the heel. Uh, but ultimately, if, if uh, the person hiking in the woods is successful, they can crush that serpent's head. Of the two options, what would you prefer? The heel, Yeah. Uh, neither. If, th- if, uh, if there was a third option, we would choose neither. Uh, but of the two, a heel bruise is far less severe than a head bruise. And that's what we're seeing here, that there will be that Christ, when he comes, and we'll see it as we go through the homilies the rest of this morning, is foreshadowed that he will come, It's foreshadowed that he will die, that there is death, there is an injury that Christ will receive. But ultimately, it's not a fatal injury. Christ rises again, but Satan is defeated and crushed and destroyed. And we, those that follow Christ, are victorious because Christ has been victorious. And we see that promised all the way back in Genesis. So stay tuned. There's more to come.
1: In your Bibles, as we continue seeing Christ in all of Scripture, turn with me. To Isaiah chapter 9, if you have your Bible or your device with you, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews, and you can turn to page 573. If you don't own a Bible, that's yours to keep. As you turn there, let me ask you this, have you felt any gloom this year? For many of us, the answer is yes. Gloom is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 9, as God's people were facing Invasion, exile, and collapse as a society. But the prophet starts in verse 1 by saying that those who were in gloom would not remain in gloom for long. For, verse 6, let's read together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so my encouragement to you this morning in keeping with this text is simply this. Cast off your gloom because of who this son is and what he does currently. And we'll see both of those briefly. First of all, who is he? Well, we're told a child is born and a son is given. Notice, we don't normally say that when a child is born, that a child is given. This son is given, not just created or conceived. He's given because he already existed before his birth and even before his conception. Well, how? Well, consider some of the titles that were given later in verse 6. We're given four titles. Pay attention to the middle two. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these two middle titles, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, affirm the full, true divinity, the deity of the Son, He existed prior to his birth because he is God in the flesh. He is the mighty God, El Gabor, and he is the father or author, says John Calvin, author of eternity. That is, he is co-eternal with the father. Christmas is a great time to get in touch with tradition, and at Christmas we sing language borrowed from the Nicene Creed itself, from the fourth century, that he is true God of true God, light from light eternal. So who is this son? He is the divine son with us in the midst of our gloom. That's one reason. And the second reason to cast off our gloom is because of what he does even now, which is that he rules. Well, I skipped two of the titles. Wonderful Counselor, there's some debate over exactly what that means. But the clue comes from a phrase that we skipped earlier in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he needs no other advisors, no other PR consultants. He alone is his own counselor. Jesus said at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. My daughter asked me on Thursday, even other countries? Yes, even other countries, even our countries. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. But to what effect does he rule? That is to say, is he just a symbolic figurehead, pacing the floor of heaven, anxiously twiddling his thumbs, waiting until he has permission to return, watching the world go to hell in a handbasket until then? No, he is, verse 6, the prince of peace. His rule brings peace on earth with those with whom... He is pleased. The gospel does indeed cause conflict. We know that. It divides families, it sets the world on fire. But under his rule, under Christ's rule, men beat their swords into plowshares. Isaiah 2 4. The wolf and the lamb lie down together. Isaiah 11 6 and 65. Jesus wins, and verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He sits on David's throne and establishes his kingdom, it says, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So briefly, I want to leave you with this thought that Christmas is the hinge of all of history. This unlikely kingdom that started with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the enthronement of the Son of God, That's the unlikely little pebble that topples the giant in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. It turns into a great mountain that covers the whole world. It's the mustard seed in Matthew 13 that turns into a tree that all the birds make their nests in. It's the pinch of leaven that leavens the whole lump, that changes the whole world. Listen, the kingdom of Christ stopped the pagan sacrifices in the Roman world. The kingdom of Christ sparked the Reformation. The kingdom of Christ ended the slave trade. The kingdom of Christ ended Roe v. Wade. The kingdom of Christ planted this church in 1914. It saved us. It's spreading like wildfire in China, Africa, and Latin America. And if you're tempted to think, well, how can this be so in such a gloomy world? Verse 7 ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will do this. Now, a brief rhetorical question. How much zeal does an infinite God have? How much energy is he capable of mustering well, infinite energy, right? There's no untapped potential in God. He is pure act. His zeal is the reason the church has lasted this long. His zeal at work in you is what keeps you following Christ even when you want to throw in the towel, and his zeal will see to it that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So cast off your gloom because we have been given the divine Son who rules the world. So our
2: third of four Christmas devotionals this morning, church, takes us now to the New Testament, and specifically to that of John chapter 1, verse 14, which reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And our thesis statement for our text here this morning, church, quite simply is this. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, humbled himself to the point of taking on human flesh so that by his poverty we might become rich. And although this text here, church, does not talk about a manger scene, nor about a little town called Bethlehem, nor about angels bringing good news of great joy, which will be for all people, this text still, in a way, is the Apostle John's Christmas story. And he begins here, church, in verse 14 with the Word. Again, the Word here being, as I shared last night, none other than, verse 14, the only Son from the Father, or that of Jesus Christ. Who not only, John chapter 1 verse 2, was in the beginning with God, but who also then, John chapter 1 verse 1, was God. And that through him, church, verse 3, all things were made, and that without him, church, was not anything made that was made. And thus, when you put it all together here, church, you realize that the word Jesus Christ, quite frankly, is the eternal and infinite, omnipotent and omniscient, holy and just and righteous God of the universe, who, verse 14, took on flesh. And that although he, Jesus Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man, Philippians chapter 2. Or to put it another way, that the omnipotent and eternal Son of the Most High God himself, Jesus Christ, that he willingly, church, took on human flesh by being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary from the lineage of David in a little town called Bethlehem. And verse 14 dwelt among us, which as the late W.H. Williamton wrote, that the American evangelist D.L. Moody would often share this story about a young biologist who one day came across an especially large and active anthill during a walk in the forest. And being delighted by such an anthill, the young biologist then simply sat down on a nearby rock took out his notebook and began writing down everything that he saw. However, soon the entire anthill was in a state of upheaval as the tiny creatures became aware of his presence. Therefore, frustrated by all this, the young biologist then simply walked away, wishing that he could somehow find a way to communicate to them, assuring these little creatures of his interest in them and that he would not harm them. However, he concluded that the only way that this could ever take place would be for him to take upon himself the body of an ant and to there become and then become part of their existence and to share his story with them in a way that they could comprehend it, which is what occurred at the incarnation when the infinite and holy and eternal and sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, willingly agreed to take upon himself a finite and fleshly body so that he, the lofty creator, could personally communicate with us, his lowly creatures. And that he, Jesus Christ, came into this world church in order to bring light into the darkness, and to bear witness to the truth, to call sinners, to repent of their sins, and to preach to them the good news of the kingdom of God, all while also being the one church who would crush the serpent's head, defeat the works of the devil, die for the sins of many, set the captives free, save sinners from their sins, and make them part of the eternal kingdom of God forever. And thus, because of that, all hailed this morning, church. This eternal and infinite, omnipotent and omniscient, holy and just and righteous God of the universe, Jesus Christ, who willingly, for our sake, Christian, took on human flesh, lived a life that we could not live, paid the price for our sins that we could not pay, and then on the third day was raised for our justification, Also, that those who believe in him, who trust in him, and who by the grace of God place their faith in him, may have life, life, life in him, church, life that is everlasting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity today to work our way through your word and to see Christ in the Old Testament and the New Testament and to be in hope be in all of his glory forever. Let us as a church continue to worship him well throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: I have the privilege of speaking from doing a devotional on John three sixteen, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this devotional, I focused on what love is this, and may we never forget. As we observe him, um, and celebrate the fact Jesus, Jesus is coming to the world, we also understand that He didn't only arrive for no purpose, as we've been going through this morning, or no reason. So what is the ultimate purpose? In John: 129, it states that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And though this scripture might be familiar to many, the non-believer and Christian alike, may we never become numb to it, may it never get old to us, or we grow bored of it. May it always continue to reach the the innermost parts and depths of our hearts, not just for an intellectual exercise, but it's the scripture that shows us the depths of God's love for us through his son, Jesus. This is where we encounter the fulfillment of the greatest love story. This isn't just a seasonal love, but a love that has an eternal effect. God is holy and just, and we couldn't live up to his law or his standard. So now we see this incredible demonstration of where we see God pouring out his great mercy and and love, grace on sinful mankind, though we deserve wrath, because it's our sins that separate us from God. And we need a just advocate to stand in our place in order to reconcile us back to him. And that's done through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 reminds us that there is salvation in no other name and no one else under heaven. By which we may be saved. And God so loved us. And that's what He's done. This is a sacrificial love. God sending His only begotten Son, whose life wasn't taken, but willingly He laid down His life so that sinners could be saved from the penalty, power, and someday, ultimately, ultimately the very presence of sin. All because God so loved us. There's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can save us, nor wash away our sins, or wipe our slate clean. As it's a sacrificial love, it's also a proactive love, not just a reactive love because something good we did to deserve the sacrifice and forgiveness. No, this is where we see Jesus, the suffering servant, who was truly God and truly man, falsely accused, mocked, spit, spit on, beaten, crowned with thorns, thorns around his head, exposed for all to see, a sinless lamb, sacrificed on our behalf because of our sins. He humbled himself, nailed to a cross. Pierced in his side, the crushing of God's son so that sinners could be saved from eternity in hell. Dying a death that mankind deserves, his perfection for our sins. That's an amazing trade, right? All because our holy God so loved us. May we never forget. We as people not walking by the spirit may only love when somebody loves us back. But we serve a God who proactively went out of his way to love us first, like it states in 1 John 4.19. We love because God loved us first. It's not because of what we've done, but because of his redeeming work on the cross. For Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace we've been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. All this done so we can have peace and be reconciled back with God. Bearing our sins on that old rugged cross so that we can be forgiven. This is love. May we never forget Not only did he die, but he gloriously rose up on the third day and the grave has been defeated because God so loved. Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses confesses and is saved. And this is the good news that I pray we never forget. Slaves of corruption can now be slaves of righteousness. The guilty can now be blameless, softening the hearts of those who were once haters of God by our words and our lifestyle. Called out of the darkness into his marvelous light, forgiveness is received as you repent and turn away from your sins because you believe and are no longer bound to your past mistakes. Freeing us from the, the spiritual prisons now we have his Holy Spirit when we believe and confess. Through his death and resurrection, he brings the dead to life, no longer unconscious. This is, that was us who didn't know Jesus. But being alive, we now understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. I pray we never forget this undeserved grace, sufficient enough to meet our needs to forgive us, transform us, and also keep us. Also now we have this living hope, this amazing Savior. And today, by the amazing grace of God, this is the greatest gift, the gift of salvation through the Son. May we never forget. This is the greatest gift that is given. For the nonbeliever, this is the greatest gift you'll ever receive. And for the believer, this is the greatest gift to give the good news. There's an an old hymn they would sing, when I was growing up, Jesus, I'll never forget what you've done for me. Jesus, I'll never forget how you set me free. Jesus, I'll never forget how you brought me out. Jesus, I'll never forget. No, never. I pray we never forget what Christ has done for us this morning, saints. Amen.